Hello, fellow innovators. This is Patrick Emmons. And this is Shelly Nelson. Welcome to the Innovation and the Digital Enterprise Podcast, where we interview successful visionaries and leaders, giving you an insight into how they drive and support innovation within their organizations. Today, we welcome international keynote speaker and best-selling author, Les McKeown, to the show. Les has over 25 years of global business experience, including starting 42 companies in his own right. He was the founding partner of an incubation consulting company that launched hundreds of businesses with thousands of employees. Les is the author of one of my favorite books and national bestseller, Predictable Success, Getting Your Organization on the Growth Track and Keeping It There. Also, The Synergist, Leading Your Team to Predictable Success, and Do Lead, Share Your Vision, Inspire Others, Work Towards a Common Goal. Like I had mentioned, I'd, I'd read Predictable Success before I started my last business, and it really helped me see the arc that exists in the life cycle of every organization. So welcome to the show, Les. Welcome, Les. Great to be here, Patrick. Hi, Shelley. Hi, everybody. Les, if you don't mind to kick us off, if you could please share with our listeners, uh, for those who, who aren't aware, what is predictable success? Well, it's the name I gave to a series of patterns that are recognized over time, Patrick. So I started my career like a long time ago. It's probably just before the Civil War. Um, as initially as a, <laughs> a CPA or the, the British equivalent, as you can hear by my accent, I'm not quite from these parts. I'm an American citizen. I've been here 20 years, but I grew up in Ireland and I started my career as a chartered accountant, which is the British equivalent of a CPA, but I had no interest in tax and all that sort of stuff. I, I, all I was interested in was um, helping people grow their organizations. And as you mentioned, I got into a position where I was being asked by people over and over again if I would actually go beyond just advising them and join their team. And I got involved in over 40 startups before I was 35. And um, even a dumb Irishman uh, is going to begin to see patterns eventually. You do the same thing often enough, right? And I began to see a series of recurring patterns back in those years, mostly startup, just post-startup. And I got so intrigued with that that I stopped everything else I was doing. And I focused exclusively on tracking these recurring patterns of success and failure. At that point in business, eventually, any organization at all, whether for profit or not for profit. Moved to the US, uh, like I said, about 20 years ago, because I felt I had got a holistic model that shows how organizations uh, grow and then eventually decline of any size, but I hadn't tested it out with very large organizations. And I got an opportunity to come here to the US, got to work with some fantastic organizations back then, Microsoft, Sun, Microsystems, American Express, the US Army, Harvard University, and uh, the patterns that I thought would play out, played out. And I put a bunch of words around the various stages that we're gonna talk about in a minute or two. And the overall model is called predictable success. That's awesome. What really touched on this for me, having been only, an, obviously, what an impressive background. Uh, I'm only on my third business but even after two, uh, what you had done, it really crystallized and like a razor uh, hit me right in the jaw that there were some of these patterns that clearly I, I didn't see enough because with two businesses under your belt, you don't. Uh, but I did see with the different stages that they, they really did make a lot of sense. Luckily, I, I haven't gotten to the latter half, but uh, 
the first half. So do you mind uh, explaining uh, the model and, and the different various stages? Sure. So the model is really a life cycle, um, and it's much the same as the human life cycle with one major difference, which is that for the most part, you can actually reverse aging as an organization. There's an exception, which I'll talk about in a moment or two. So you've got to think of an upturned arc. Um, those of you of a certain age, you'll remember Mary Tyler Moore's hairstyle. It's sort of like that. And we have three growth stages on the left side of the arc. Then we reach the pinnacle, which is predictable success, and then three decline stages. And really, really quickly, uh, those stages are, first of all, early struggle, which anybody who started an organization of any sort will know about immediately. And it's what's popularly called the startup stage. And um, early struggle is a tough time. It typically takes three years or so. It's That's a very generic statement. 80% of all uh, new ventures fail. Uh, that number is going to get very much worse over the next year or so for um, obvious reasons. But it's very high failure, right? For the one in five organizations that make it through early struggle, they get to the second uh, stage, which is really the first growth stage you find your market now. And it's got a very technical name. I call that stage fun <laughs> because it's fun. It really is fun. Mm, very scientific. <laughs> yes. And for most people, when they get to fun, they think that's it. That's what I set this whole thing up and went through that grief for, is to be here in fun. And as you alluded to, it's actually only the second of seven stages. So for most people, they don't really understand what happens when the third stage hits. And the third stage I call whitewater. And whitewater is a stage when the very success that you reap in fun brings a degree of complexity that begins to overwhelm you. So you just can't do what you were doing six months ago, a year ago, which was you were basically coming in and improvising. During fun, we say yes to everything and work out how to do it later on. And then we scale to a size where that begins to break down and we hit this whitewater stage. And during whitewater, there's a, a very essential decision needs to be made. And typically by the founder owner, who's typically still around at that point, which is, do I want to break through this stage of whitewater, which means putting in systems and processes and adhering to them and you know, but, you know, know, really shaping up and showing up in a different way than I did before? Or do I really just want to go back to fun and stay there? And so maybe just if we have a mom and pop coffee store, maybe we opened our third, fourth outlet, and that was when we hit Whitewater. Well, it's a valid choice just to go back to having two and enjoying that and being in fun. But for many founder owners, the choice is I want to keep going. And if they want to keep going and open the sixth store, seventh store, 12th store, 100th store, you've got to put systems and processes in place. You do that, it's again typically a two to three year journey through Whitewater, you get to that stage that I call predictable success, which is the apex of the curve. And in predictable success, you've got the perfect combination of, on the one hand, the entrepreneurial zeal, creativity, thrust, vision that you started with, and systems and processes allow you to codify and scale. Now, you do the right thing, you can stay in predictable success indefinitely. Uh, I think GE was for one period in predictable success by my estimation for about 18 years. That was mostly during the Jack Welch period. But what happens with almost all organizations, and our listeners will be well aware of this, is having just done a good thing, right? We put systems and processes in place. It was painful, but it turned out to be really good. What do we do with something that's good? Same thing I do with dessert, have more. And so we put more <laughs> systems and processes in place. And we begin to become over-systematized. And that's what puts us on the decline stage. 
And real briefly, the three decline stages are we are in predictable success, this pinnacle. We begin, we slip into a stage I call treadmill. And treadmill is sort of like the evil twin of Whitewater. In Whitewater, for the first time, we were the under-processed organization. Now on treadmill, for the first time, we're the over-processed organization. We begin to adhere more to checklists because that's the way we do things than because of the thing the checklist is supposed to achieve. We begin to talk a lot about compliance. We worry more about using the precise, you know, hex code for the color scheme in our website than using stuff that's really going to wow our visitors. And treadmill's a natural stage, it happens. But the key thing is to get out of it as soon as possible. Once you realize you're in there, you lift your foot off the um, brake pedal, which is really what too many systems and processes are like. And that allows us to come back into predictable success. But if you stay in treadmill too long, you slide into the penultimate stage, which I call the big rut. And the big rut is basically the same as treadmill, except for one key thing. We've lost the power to self-diagnose. We actually like it like this. Nothing changes, no challenge factor. Customers are a bit of a pain in the neck. But hey, I know I'm going to get paid at the end of every week. And as long as we don't all rock the boat, this can go on for a very long period of time because we built a really strong balance sheet uh, when we were in predictable success and maybe even when we're in treadmill. So we're sitting there. I I think as an example, if I want to offend a few listeners, forgive me, uh, Microsoft's been in uh, the big rut for, I think, about six years now. Client of mine, Harvard University, has been in the big rut for 107 years or something like that. <laughs> but it's got um, $33 billion in near cash. So it's not going away anytime soon, but it is in what the big rut typically is, which is a long, slow decline into total irrelevance. And then we hit the final stage, I call it death rattle because usually something happens and we think, oh, I hadn't heard of that company for a while. Like you may remember about, it was a while back now, maybe six, seven, eight years ago, we heard about Kodak, which nobody had heard about for quite some time. And uh, we said, oh, Kodak, well, where have they been? They used to own taking pictures. Then they disappeared. And then we heard about them for a little while, but actually they were, it was just being broken up for patent value. So the death rattle is the final stage. Um, so that's a happy note to end our little brief summary of the seven stages. So the founders that are listening, I, I think a lot of this very much resonates, but from like an internal existing organization, you touched on a couple of the organizations that you, you feel like are are falling outside of the predictable success and, and a little bit on that downslide. Where does innovation exist in this conversation? How important is it? When is it critical? You know, when is it a danger? Uh, well, the danger is in losing it. And uh, what I see is this, is, and it, it takes me into the second part of the whole model, which is uh, it really comes from the overarching leadership style in the organization. And that style has four component parts. And if you're missing any one of them, then innovation suffers. And the first component part is the leadership style that gets the whole thing going. And that's what I call the visionary style. And at the genesis of any organization, don't care what size it is, how long ago it started. There's typically one person, occasionally it's two, very infrequently three, but even then there's usually one dominant person who started the whole darn thing. High risk taker, I call him the visionary, 30,000 feet, love to start things, but have got a high squirrel factor. You know, they, they, they start in all sorts of things, but as soon as they see a squirrel, they're off to do something else. And they're Jones, what, what gets their endorphin rush is getting things started. And they really are the progenitors of vision. And so knowing that they're not great at the detail 
and that they can do it if they have to, but it drives them crazy. Visionaries lock in really, really early on with what I call operators. They're the folks who just get stuff done. Operators just will go through a breeze block to get a thing done. But they're not in themselves innovators. And in fact, they don't like blank sheets of paper. They don't like brainstorming. That's why they want visionaries to work with, because that's how they get their marching orders. And that model of a visionary in the center orchestrating the work of increasing numbers of operators is how we get through the growth stage out of early struggle into fun. And the organization and fun is typically a visionary in the middle, like I say, orchestrating operators. And innovation is happening all the time because during that stage, uh, you know, a board meeting is a ride up in the elevator. Visionary gets in with a squirrel idea, talks to two operators in the elevator. By the time the elevator doors open and we walk out into the office, we're ready to go. We're locked and loaded. Let's get it done. Let's open an office in Chicago. <laughs> Why? Met a guy. You love him. Just gets his. Perfect. All right. So by you know that afternoon, you're looking for office space in Chicago. So you can turn in a dime. And the visionary is holding the innovative power of the organization and conducting it like an orchestra conductor. When we hit Whitewater, that's when the first little, um, well, not little, actually a big a challenge comes with those styles because together they're not enough to put in place and adhere to the needed systems and processes. And so we bring in typically for the first time in Whitewater at senior level, uh, the third style, which I call the processor. And the processor is the one who makes things work properly. Up until now, we've been doing the right thing. We've got to learn how to do the thing right. And it's the processor that brings that. The difficulty is the role of the processor in and of itself, and I'm not here to offend any of our listeners. I'm a processor myself, so I'm, uh, I just want to be truthful about this. Left to their own devices, processors will damp down innovation. Too much process kills innovation because it doesn't give you any wiggle room. And if you think about it, it's a zero-sum game. You can either be a 100% visionary, no plans, no nothing, waking up, let's see what we're going to do. My dog, Blue, 100% visionary, no idea what today's like compared to yesterday, right? Or you can be a 100% processor, no room to maneuver, everything predetermined. You've got to always do it this way. And, and success is really balancing those. And by the way, the operator in this fight between the visionary and the processor is just standing there saying, have your damn meetings. I don't want to take part. Just then when you've made a decision, tell me what to do. And so we get a bit of gridlock in there, which requires the fourth and final style I call the synergist. And the synergist style actually differs from the other three in that it's a learned style that the other three learn. So visionaries, operators, processors in successful organizations, complex organizations and predictable success, learn to be synergists. They learn to not demand their visionary answer or their operator answer or their processor answer be the only one. They work for an answer that's best for the organization as a whole. Now, here's what happens in those organizations that are in treadmill and moving into the big rut, the visionary gets squeezed out. The visionary either ceases being heard and sort of absents themselves, steps back, withdraws their discretionary effort. Maybe a visionary owner or or CEO becomes, you know, chairman for life. That means uh, nobody's listening to me anymore. <laughs> you know, you, you folks do it and just send me the dividend check or they sell the business, or they just leave, or they go back and start something young again. And what happens is the visionary role gets squeezed out. The challenge factor goes because then the operators leave. The operators need 
the the visionary to give them their marching orders, and we and we end up with processors like me making sure that the business goes bust precisely on time, um, and that's what happens is we lose the visionary role. That's that's where innovation goes uh, away in organizations. If you see an organization that isn't innovating, it's because of the lack of a visionary at the very top of the organization. And I'll finish with this. Just uh, I know there are tons of follow-up questions, but something that's really important to understand is the way most, and by now these are typically large organizations. I mean, small organizations can get into treadmill and big rut, but they're typically large. What happens is then they intellectually at senior level realize, oh, we need to innovate. And so what do we do? We build an innovation lab. We have a VP innovation we put it in a box. We say, okay, let's find a system and process that's going to get us to innovate. I, my heart sinks when I hear people. Um, I was with a, a business in London. If you knew it, it's the, it's the, it's, 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 well, to be truthful, it's the second best in its field. I'm not going to name it because of what I'm about to say. And I was there because the CEO is an ex-client of mine, and he brought me over to talk specifically about innovation. And his opening, uh, our first hour, he took me on a tour of the floor of the building that he's going to turn into the innovation lab. And I thought, okay, we're screwed from the start here. That's not how you innovate. <laughs> You've got to build a muscle of innovation in the organization. The organization has to innovate. Now, is it a better start than nothing? Yes, it is. But it's not, you can't innovate out of a box. End of rant. I think it's it's a perfect uh, identification of some of the challenges I see as well. Um, I know, uh, I think it's uh, Harvard Business Review has uh, had an article earlier this year, maybe last year, around innovation theater, right? Where, uh, you know, it was- Exactly. Right? That's what these labs are. Exactly. It's not real innovation. Now, there are a lot of great people working in and running some great innovation labs. And what happens in the best situation is they become like a little parrot group who then begin to quietly push the concept of innovation out through the rest of the organization. But if you're depending solely on a one named group of people to be your innovation group, that's like expecting HR to be wholly responsible for hiring good people. You can't do it like that. You've got to push that just like you've got to push, you know, the best organizations, the line managers are great hirers. They use their HR department as a fantastic tool but they're not expecting them to do all the work. It's like, you know, you could have the best IT department in the world, but if everybody in the organization is expecting all of their IT needs to be looked after by the IT team, in this day and age, you're screwed. I mean, there are a lot of there are a lot of businesses who were being forced to go virtual just in the last few weeks before we recorded this, who are now struggling and paying the price because when they were non-virtual, when they were physical, if somebody had a need, they'd press a button and the, the guy or gal from IT would come and fix it. And now nobody's coming to fix this stuff, you know? And it's the same thing with innovation. Yes, you can have an innovation group that you can, you know, reach to and who can spend time looking at real best practices, but you've got to teach every one of the sub parts of your organization the principles of how to innovate. And I think that leads into my, my next question is, you know, these established organizations that are trying these labs or they're, they're, they know that they need to innovate. They're aware of it. That's something that's clearly uh, gotten to the CEO's level. He sees the need that what was status quo is no longer what we're going to be doing. And I think to your point, that's been dramatically obvious in the last couple of weeks from before when we recorded this. So 
what are some of the things that you've seen successful where an organization either creates innovation lab or maybe acquires an organization that has a uh, an offering that you know is very complementary to their current offering i've seen organizations a number of my clients have done this where they've purchased something uh Unfortunately, more times than not, they foisted into too many of their own structures and thereby forcing them into a, a position where you you reduce the value of this organ this this asset that you've acquired. So bring it back full circle. Yeah, I, it, organizations on the left side of the of the growth curve, the predictable success curve, often will acquire an organization, one or more organizations on the right side on the left side, I'm sorry, on the growth side, um, as an attempt to inject youthfulness, so to speak. You know, think of it as getting a Botox hit because uh, that's that's typically all it is. I mean, you go out and Cisco goes out and buys some trendy young, you know, b- company that's making some trendy young piece of uh, uh, computer equipment and uh, 18 months. I mean, we've all seen the press, you know, here's CEO of Acquire, Acquire or company, Big Co. And here's a little excited uh, CEO of Acquire E company. We're going to make Josephine the whatever it is. You know, leader in our, Josephine's gone. Eighteen months later, you know, her her shares cash out, culture clash internally, as you say, being foisted with all of the systems and processes of the acquire our company. How many great products have we seen that were acquired by large organizations just disappear? You know, killed. Now, occasionally it works. If you see a company consistently buying and acquiring a portfolio of younger organizations, that's typically a sign they're doing something right. And I've put the uh, biggest distinction down to the to to this, and it's a very simple thing to find out. Does the most senior team, what I call in our world in predictable success, T one T one being the group uh, that are making the key uh, strategic decisions, the senior leadership team, when you profile them, are they as close as they can get to being co-equally VSOP, visionary, synergist, operator, processor? And typically they're not. Typically they're predominantly processor synergists. That's typically what they are. They're trying to make everything rinse and repeatable and trying to bring our people along with us. But there's no room for challenge function. Uh, And, you know, one of the sure signs that an organization is moving into the big rut is you see those senior leaders who were providing a challenge function increasingly begin to be seen as mavericks and then they get squeezed out. That's then after that is the typical profile of the organization that goes and acquires a little micro company and then it it doesn't work. It just fizzles. And I'll tell you what the biggest single uh, divider is just to be uh, topical for a moment or two. Here we are, as this is recorded, middle of the COVID crisis. All of the organizations that are in treadmill, uh, sorry, I'm sorry, many of the organizations are treadmill, all of the organizations that are in the big rut, they're going to do one thing really, really well. They're going to pivot well. That's the word du jour, pivot. They're all going to pivot really well because what's pivoting? Pivoting is looking at this market, recognizing, oh, that's disappearing. Looking at the obvious market to move to. So you're a big, big restaurant chain and you need to you know, move from in uh, building dining to takeout and delivery. You're going to do that because you've got the systems and processes. You can retrain people and all the rest of it. Pivoting isn't innovating. Pivoting is going to kill a whole bunch of businesses because you pivot and that's all you do. What happens the next time the market moves? And while you're pivoting and re-pivoting, somebody else is innovating. 
It's not in-house dining and takeaway that's going to revolutionize the restaurant business. It's something else. I don't know what it is. I'm not that smart. But somebody's going to innovate something. Innovating is a bit like Bobby Orr, I think, the great uh, ice hockey champ. Uh, I mean, best ice hockey player ever. Uh, he said, the secret of my success is one simple thing. I skate to where the puck is going to be. And that's what innovation is. Innovation is skating to where the puck is going to be. Now, how do you work out where the puck's going to be? That's where it's hard work. It's easy, relatively easy. I'm sounding very pompous here, forgive me. But it is much e relatively easier to pivot, but do not for a second think that you've pivoted, you've innovated. You've just bought time. That's all you've done. That's my second rant, and that one's over now too. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Shelly, what do you got? I'm just curious uh, because you've worked with so many startups and I hear a lot uh, from startups here in Chicago that, you know, they tend to hire their friends, right? And then they run out of friends and then they have to hire people from the outside. So have you consulted with companies that are very strategic in who they want to bring in once they run out of friends? <laughs> that's, uh, uh, that's very insightful. And that is one of the classic uh, growth patterns. Um, which is that the employee group, so to speak, uh, tends to be FOTB, friends of the boss. And that's great. And that's, that's a great way to grow because typically they've got a relationship. They can, you know, shorthand their conversations. There's an intuitive understanding as to whether this person has, uh, you know, got the, the core principles that we require. But the key reason that it works is there's nowhere to hide. And so those people get brought in. Performance is obvious. It's just, you know, and also the people that, the, that are friends of the boss are, are, are the ones that, they, that get hired. Obviously, bosses don't hire all their friends, but the ones they hire are the ones that they know are going to be uh, comfortable with ambiguity because ambiguity is the key driving thing in the early stages of growth is the ability to, you know, use, reuse a word we were talking about, to pivot, to say yes to stuff, just make things up. You know, don't be worried about job titles. Don't be worried. I mean, what does it matter what it says in your card? You know, let's just do what we need to do today. What happens during Whitewater, um, there's a very precise thing. It's one of the five key principles that we work with uh, in getting helping getting people out of Whitewater. One of the key things is that if you want to get out of Whitewater and go up to predictable success, you've got to do what uh, we call moving from heads to hats. And moving from heads to hats means that you've got to get away from the stage where you were previously, which was right previously, which was, uh, what does a sales manager do in this business? In this, uh, business? I don't know. Uh, George, come over here. Tell the guy what you do. George is the sales manager, so he knows. And what, what does the sales manager do? It's whatever George does, because he's been the sales manager for years, and he's an FOTB. In Whitewater, for the first time, we start to make a transition. doesn't happen overnight where we've got to begin to move towards hats, which means instead of heads, we're saying we have to define what key roles are in this organization. What, if we're going to get to predictable success, what does this role need to be? And then we hire to that. Now, we define this. It's a, it's a frightening time because George is sitting thinking, hold on a second, what happens if you define this role away from me? Well, there's tons of things we can coach, mentor, train, move, shift. You know, that doesn't mean there's necessarily a separation, though there sometimes is. But that's a key distinction. It's one of the reasons, by the way, that many entrepreneurial founders, visionary founders, choose to stay, or go back to fun and stay there because they like it with the friends of the boss model. And they don't like the idea 
of, you know, actually defining clearly what we need. So that transition is a hard one and it takes a, a while and it doesn't happen that, you know, one day it's all friends of the boss and the next day it's all externally hired superstars. But there is a transition where the first group of these start to come in. You know, the first time we hire a new person from outside solely based on their competence brings a big culture shift internally. And some organizations suffer uh, badly from that. Uh, the ones that are determined to get through to predictable success, they'll they'll accept it, they'll adapt, and then they'll do it again, hire another person solely based on competence. Then they do it again, and then eventually it becomes the default. Um, it, it, there's a, a natural cadence or choreography, which is um, the visionary, if in a successful world, the business or organization, the visionary is there at the start. Sadly, just to make a little detour, uh, if you get this uh, sort of like a Rubik's cube, you know, where you've got to move stuff around to get to the right uh, final position. And if you start in the wrong place, you'll never get to where you want to go to. And sadly, one of the things that happens in an uh, economic crisis, uh, a downturn, we're way past that. Um, one of the things that happens is that a lot of people who aren't visionary start new businesses. Um, I'm just beginning to teach a whole new a class in this because I'm really scared that a lot of people are going to say, look, the only option I have is to start something fresh. But if you're an operator or a processor or a synergist and you go out and try to start a venture, chances are very, very, your, your, your chances of not succeeding are much high, higher than 80%. Uh, it goes off the charts. So um, there are things, ways that you can fix it. But the ideal thing is that the visionary is the one that starts the business. To get out of early struggle, they need an operator right away. Uh, because otherwise they get into what I call the artisan trap, which is, hey, I'm a visionary. Here's I come like I'm working this brilliant idea. I sit here cold, write my wonderful app. Oh shoot, I need money. I better sell this. I'll go ahead and I sell it. But while I'm and that's an operator thing. So if if you're capable of being a visionary and an operator, which many people are, most of us have got two styles. Uh, you might think, oh, we need visionary and operator to start a business. I'm a visionary and an operator. I'm the best person to start a business. But actually, you get stuck in this artisan trap of being visionary to make the thing. And then, oh, I've got to be an operator, go out and sell the thing. Oh, shoot, I wasn't able to work on making it better while I was doing that, do that. Oh, no more money. And so you get stuck in the sell, do, sell, do, sell, do thing. So the ideal uh, Rubik's Cube is visionary starts, thinks very quickly, i got to find a way to be able to afford an operator. And then from then all the way up to Whitewater, it's visionary adding operators, an operator, another operator, another operator. You might hire what I call a mini P, somebody with processor and fun, just to keep you out of jail. So if what you do requires you've got to, you know, actually not kill people, and that means having a quality control person, say, or something like that, you might hire a mini P, but they're not going to be at senior management. They're just there to do a job. The processor comes in in Whitewater. If you bring the processor big P in too early, they will tap the growth of your organization and it'll do this. It'll, it'll uh, for listeners who can't see my hands, it'll level out in fun. So you don't want to bring the, the senior processors in until Whitewater. And it's not until you begin to emerge out of Whitewater into predictable success that you then need the synergist. The processor, visionary operator just need to do their job in Whitewater, do heads to hatch and all the other things, make it happen. And then to stay in predictable success, that's when you need the synergist to come in. And the synergist is the one that gets them all working together. And you can see um, uh, classic examples, again, just to sh uh, prove the Rubik's Cube point. A lot of uh, trendy, hip, young organizations bring in synergists way too early. Uh, things like a head of culture, head of talent development, those are very synergy-y things. And they leave after six months or a year because there's nothing for them to do. 
There's nothing to synergize. Nobody's fighting. Everybody's happy. Everybody knows what the culture is. You don't have to write it on a wall. Where there's only six of us, you know. And so the synergist role is only really needed once you hit predictable success. And so that's the sequence. Visionary, operator really quickly, many more operators, processor, through to predictable success, synergist. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. I have a question around the difference between, you know, this, again, the I think this makes perfect sense to me as somebody who's started businesses, but uh, you know, there's that balance of like, uh, you know, finding a, a true vision visionary who is out in the wild, right. As opposed to somebody who's within an, an existing organization and wants to be an entrepreneur. And I was hoping that you could touch on maybe some of the differences of those kind of characteristics of those folks. Sure. Uh, they're classically both got uh, high uh, V scores. Now, I, I just let me make something really clear and, and give our listeners a tool as well before I fully answer that. Uh, I've been talking somewhat in a caricatured manner just for ease of communications as if we're all one thing. We're not. Most of us have got DNA. So I'm a visionary processor, big V, small p. That's, that's a very common consultant uh, DNA because you know I like having big ideas and I like giving you the tools to do it, but I don't want to do it myself. You know, that's why I'm a, so, so I'm no operator in me and I live alone like a hermit. I have no synergist in me at all. Anyway, um, most of us got a primary style and a secondary style. Many people have got a third tertiary style. Um, you can go check it out in five minutes free. Uh, just go to synergistquiz.com. It's a little multi-choice uh, tool. You could um, you do it in about five minutes and it'll give you your precise number DNA. And the distinction between entrepreneurs, if we want to use that phrase, and intrapreneurs typically comes uh, is, is around the level of their V-ness. Um, it's only one element of it. A part of it is their risk profile. Um, an intrapreneur is typically less in need of high risk. They're still as interested in solving problems, which is a big visionary thing, getting elegant solutions, thinking about the big picture. But entrepreneurs are typically have got a higher risk profile because they're prepared to walk out of a well-paid job and do something that's got an 80% sense of failure. But one of the ways to track that is if you go take the synergist quiz, each of the styles, uh, the numbers are irrelevant. I'm about to give a whole bunch of numbers. The actual numbers are irrelevant. It's the relativity of them, which I'll explain in a second too, that's important. Um, you can score... At a, you know different levels. So anything that's up to 120, the maximum is 960. If you were all something, you were all visionary, you'd be a 960 on visionary. Anything up to 120 is what we call a trace score. And what that means is you want to do it. You might be brilliant at it, but you, you just don't want to do it. The, the, the styles, the scores are nothing to do with ability. Uh, you can be a, you know, a visionary, and that doesn't mean you're good at it. It just means that's what the way you show up. That's what you want to do. Up to 120, it's a, it's a trace score. It is, I don't want to do that. I know a lot of attorneys and uh, CPAs who have got trace processor scores. They're good at it. That's what they're trying to do, but that's not what they want to do. Uh, between 120 and 240, it's a secondary score. That means you can move into it and do it for a while. If you've got a secondary processor score and somebody says, go fill in the spreadsheet, you won't tear your hair out. You'll say, okay, but I'll get it over with and get it done with. Uh, 240 to 480 is a primary score, and that's the sweet spot. And that means you just carry that style with grace and ease. And uh, if you're a 270 vision, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, 270 visionary, 320 visionary, you're a visionary. The people will recognize you as such, and that's how you'll show up. What happens once you get over 480, however, it doesn't happen right away, 
Once you get over 480, it begins, and this is all for all four scores, I'll give the example with Visionary. You begin to get into the dark side of that style because it's becoming, the closer it gets up to the 960, you know, with a primary style, you own that style, the one I just talked about, with a dominant style, which is what we call this one, the dominant style above 480. The closer you get to 960, the more it owns you. You can't think any other way. You're sort of more trapped by that. And most entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, their visionary score is up, starts, it's in the dominant area. Doesn't mean to say that they're all arsonists, which is what happens when you get to 960. You're not a visionary anymore, you're an arsonist. Um, but they're up there and the style is more dominant. They're more driven by it. Innovators, entrepreneur, who are intrapreneurs, typically have a primary style. In other words, they're in charge of it. Um, you, you, if, you, if you think about an entrepreneur who would have a dominant style, they're crazy makers. They're like mad scientists. They get separated from reality. They're more interested in coming up with the next wacky idea than in, with integrating it with the rest of the organization's goals and making it part of a product pipeline and monetizing it and all that sort of stuff. So most of successful um, entrepreneurs I meet have got a primary visionary style. Most successful entrepreneurs I meet have got some degree of dominant visionary style. Long answer to a short question. No, it's great. And I think it's really important to understand those those different horizons, The you know, especially when you the, you touch on the dark side of everything, right? Right. And and not to be unfair and pick out the uh, poor old visionaries who are, as we've already seen, vital because they've got to be there right from the start. And it's the one style has got to be there from day one and stay there the whole time if we're going to succeed. But the same thing applies to the others. A, a primary operator is an operator. That's a good thing to have. We want operators. A dominant operator is a maverick. A dominant operator is the a person who says, screw your meetings, not filling in your stupid forms, not coming to your dumb meetings. I have a job to do. Leave me alone. And uh, same thing with the processor role. A primary processor is a processor. That's what we need. We need processors. A dominant processor becomes a bureaucrat. Clipboard. No. Miss Doctor, no. Can't do it. No. It's, does, our systems don't allow it. And we don't need bureaucrats. And even our dear synergists, the one who are, ones who are there holding the ropes and making everything work, a primary synergist is a synergist and we need synergists. But you become a dominant synergist, you turn into a people pleaser. You become somebody who's way too much in everybody's face, intruding people's comfort zone, much more too too much interested in whether people feel good and lose complete sight of whether or not we're actually achieving what we're here to do. And so we we don't dominance of any of the styles becomes problematic and it prevents us from growing the way we want to grow. So you want to try to stay within the primary level as much as possible. Awesome. I know we're kind of coming up on the on the end. So I thought maybe we uh we do a, a wrap if that's cool. Cool with me. I hope everybody's enjoyed it. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you, Shelley. Thanks, everybody. Go do Synergist Quiz and find out what your styles are. All right. Uh, thank you so much, Les. Yeah, I, I highly recommend you check out the website, predictablesuccess.com. Uh, I can't endorse the books enough, I think, from anybody who aspires to be a leader and understand organizationally from a high level uh, to do an assessment of where your organization's at and maybe uh, start thinking about how to uh, as Les said, you know, uh, give rebirth to uh, some of the, the that lifeblood of innovation. So, uh, Les, thanks so much for taking the time. It, it, it you know, it, I'd like to share the funny story of how we got connected, but no time for that today. Uh, so, uh, but I really appreciate you sharing your wisdom and taking the time to share it with with our audience. My pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Les. Thanks, Shelley. Bye, everybody. 
So we also want to thank our listeners. We really appreciate everyone taking the time to join us. And if you'd like to receive new episodes as they're published, you can subscribe by visiting our website at dragonspears.com slash podcast, or find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was sponsored by Dragon Spears and produced by Dante32. 